Well, how does revival begin? We look around our towns and we see homes crumbling. Marriages are ravaged by divorce and adultery. Families are plagued by absentee parents and children raised by television and screens. The culture around us seethes with sexual appetites to the point to where people are now defining themselves by the basest appetites of their flesh. Our churches seem to be more enamored with celebrity, celebrity pastors and whatever gets people through the door than with the glory of God. Millions of so-called Christians are enslaved to a prosperity gospel that promises money and health and success and encourages people to believe the lie that you can serve God and money. Hundreds of churches are closing their doors every year. What we need is revival. But how does revival begin? Turn with me to the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah is in the Old Testament. It's found on page 501 in the Blue Pew Bible in front of you. And if you're a visitor here this morning, I would encourage you, turn there, leave it open. Uh, This is where we're going to spend the next portion of our time hearing God's Word. And if you were to put the Old Testament on a timeline uh, from Genesis to Malachi, where does Nehemiah fall? It basically falls at the very end. And in fact, depending on how you interpret some of the statements in chapter 2, Nehemiah and the book of Esther may overlap. So to make a long story short, God's people disobeyed God a lot. And God, over and over again for hundreds and hundreds of years, He sends prophets warning them, God's going to have to punish this. He cannot let this continue. Turn back. Turn away from your sin. Come back to the Lord. They continued in their rebellion. And so God had to boot the Israelites out of the promised land. The king of Babylon rolls into Jerusalem. He burns down the city. He demolishes the temple and carries all of the people off into exile. And after 70 years, a king came to power named Cyrus, king of Persia. And he made a decree that the Jews should be allowed to return to Jerusalem. And in fact, he said, all of my wealth I want to give to you so that you can rebuild the temple of the Lord. And you can read about this in the book of Ezra. In fact, Ezra and Nehemiah, if you were to go read it in the Hebrew Bible, there is not even a split. This, the one book ends and the next chapter, the first chapter of Nehemiah begins. They're all considered one long narrative. And the first wave of Jews go with a leader named Zerubbabel to rebuild the temple. And if you were here in the spring, that name should sound familiar because the prophet Zechariah 
encouraged Zerubbabel and the rest of the people as they were building the temple. Well, a few years later, a second wave of Jews came to Jerusalem under the leadership of Ezra, which happens in the middle of the book of Ezra, and he comes after the rebuilding of the temple to reinstitute the law. And a few years later, a third wave of Jews comes to Jerusalem with Nehemiah to rebuild the city of Jerusalem. This morning, Nehemiah chapter 1 shows us exactly how revival begins. Not with big plans to rent out an arena or to erect a tent and hire fiery preachers, but with prayer. Revival, how does it begin? With prayer. And more importantly, Nehemiah shows us this morning where revival begins. What if the people out there aren't the ones who need revival the most? What if the people who need revival most are in here? What if revival has to begin with the people of God? What if revival has to begin with me? So if you've turned to the book of Nehemiah, let's stand together as we hear what the Spirit of Christ has to say to his church this morning. Nehemiah chapter 1 verse 1. The word of Nehemiah the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev in the 20th year as I was in Susa the capital that Hanani one of my brothers came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped who had survived the exile and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble. And shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now, I was cupbearer 
to the king. You may be seated. This morning, as the story begins to unfold in Nehemiah, and I would encourage you to come back next week because we will be in chapter 2. So you'll get your second installment. Um, We will be going through the whole book of Nehemiah this fall. And so I would encourage you to come back and to continue with us. But as the story begins to unfold, Nehemiah shows us this morning four things without which it is impossible to have revival. Four things that are absolutely necessary before any sort of revival can ever happen. Weeping, confession, repentance, and belief. So let's look at these four this morning in the story of Nehemiah. So the narrative, narrative begins as this man named Hanani and uh, others of his relatives arrive from Judah in Susa, the capital city of the Persian Empire. And if you were to look at this on a map, essentially they have made a thousand mile journey directly east into what is modern day Iran from Jerusalem. So not having the internet, not having Skype, uh, not really having any way of contact with the people back in Jerusalem. Obviously and understandably, Nehemiah is eager for any little tidbits of news that he can glean from these men about what is going on. And he asks, how are the people and how is the city? In verse 3, they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. And the wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. Number one, the first thing that is absolutely necessary before revival is going to happen, weeping. Brothers and sisters, Revival will never come to God's people until they learn how to weep. And Nehemiah weeps for two reasons this morning. He weeps for the people and he weeps for the city. First, he weeps for the people. So Nehemiah hears about the remnant. These are the people who were the poorest of the poor left behind along with the first two waves of people who have showed up in Jerusalem And the report that comes back with his relatives is this. The remnant, the people are in great trouble and shame. When you hear reports or you see with your own eyes, trouble and shame among the people of God, how do you normally respond? When you hear about a church that's being torn apart, When the people of God are filled with gossip and malicious speech. When you hear about marriages filled with adultery or divorces that are brewing in the church. When a recent study discovered that one in five youth pastors and one in seven senior pastors admitted they currently use porn. Do you weep? 
The people of God are in shambles, in great trouble, and shame. Week in and week out, our baptistries stay as dry as our eyes. Has our heart grown cold? Are we unmoved by sin and shame among the people of God? When was the last time that you wept, really wept over your sin? Have you ever felt that kind of sorrow and shame? John Bunyan writes in his autobiography, Remember, I say, the word that first laid hold upon you. Think back to the first time that the word of God pricked your conscience. Remember your terrors of conscience and the fear of death and hell. Remember also your tears and prayers to God. How you sighed under every hedge for mercy. Go back to the first time the gospel took grip on your heart. Do you remember? Was there ever a time where you were mourning and weeping over your own sin and shame? Do you remember crying out for mercy? Nehemiah wept for the people. But he also wept for the city. He hears that the walls of Jerusalem have been reduced to rubble. They've been flattened. Its gates burned with fire. And it's not just Nehemiah's hometown pride that moves his heart to tears. When the city of Jerusalem lies in shambles, when its walls are in heaps of burnt rock, and its gates are a charred pile of ashes, what it proclaims to all the peoples of the world is this. The God of Israel is dead. Powerless. Gone. If you look down at verse 9, Nehemiah quotes the Lord speaking about Jerusalem. He says that it's the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. Well, when the place that the Lord has chosen, the place that the Lord has put his name on, is the dung heap of the world. What does that say about the Lord? Nehemiah weeps for the city because the charred remains of Jerusalem bring disgrace upon the God of heaven. Again, I ask, do you weep for the city? When the name of the Lord is reviled among the nations, Does that move you to tears? After all, we are His chosen people, are we not? He's put His name upon us, hasn't He? And when the church is in decline, when churches are shutting their doors, when College Street Baptist Church hasn't seen a conversion or baptism in over a year, when churches are filled with filthiness, hypocrisy, perversion, when white supremacists feel comfortable in our pews, And racial hatred defines our congregations when our men are addicted to pornography and our women are obsessed with fleeting beauty and our children are disobedient and our members are caught 
and held captive in continuous cycles of sin, it proclaims to the world, our God has failed, our Lord cannot save, we remain unchanged. And he has no power here. You and I need to get to the place where we are mortified that anyone could ever say about us, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. When people who bear the name act as wickedly and sinfully as the rest of the world, the city lies in shambles and the name of the Lord is held up for reproach and disgrace and dishonor before the whole world. Weep, brothers and sisters. Weep for the people. Weep for the city that bears his name. As Nehemiah sits there weeping and mourning day after day, he engages in one activity, one singular duty that more than anything else indicates for us that maybe in the coming chapters a revival is awaiting. He doesn't put up a tent. He doesn't book an arena. He doesn't bring in the biggest name evangelist. Nehemiah prays. Look at the second half of verse 4. And continue, I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. We are fooling ourselves, brothers and sisters, if we think that the Spirit of God is going to descend anywhere near us if we are not desperately praying and pleading for Him to move. In 1857, a revival broke out in New York City. And it was the result of just a small prayer meeting of a few businessmen. Let me read to you what one reporter wrote about the event in the newspaper. He says, The changes which came over the church were most welcome. It was a blessed spectacle presented to the world, a church alive, a church active, a church of prayer. Churches are busy with with many things these days. How many churches would be described by an outsider as being a church alive, active, and busy with prayer? Yet when Nehemiah hears of the state of the people and the city, the thing he continues to do day in and day out is to fast and to pray. And as we turn to Nehemiah's prayer, we're going to see the last three things that are absolutely necessary in order for us to see revival. The first being confession. So we have weeping, and secondly, confession. Well, what is confession? Confession is essentially saying three things. This is not God's fault. This is all my fault. And this is all our fault. Let's see those in the prayer of Nehemiah. Verse 5. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love Him and keep His commandments. You see how he begins his prayer here? Nehemiah prays, God, no matter what your people look like, no matter what state the city of Jerusalem is in, it is not your fault. Because you, God, are a covenant-keeping God. 
You're a God of steadfast love. You keep all of your promises. Not a single word that you have promised has failed to come to pass. And even though your people are in shame and distress, God, you are the God of heaven. You are exalted. You are glorious. You are above all powers and all kings. Confession is saying the truth about our circumstances, which firstly means we say, God, this is not your fault. God is never to blame. If our church is full of deceit or division, if our marriages are crumbling, if our lives are overrun with addiction and idolatry, I know one person whose fault it isn't. God's. He is a covenant-keeping God. He is a God full of steadfast love. We cannot fully comprehend our circumstances until we see our lives in contrast to the character and the nature of God. He is perfect, holy, righteous, and above reproach. But I, verse 6, let your ear be attentive and your, serv- and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you, even I and my father's house have sinned. So confession secondly says, this is all my fault. My sin. Me. I am the problem. I have sinned, Nehemiah says. Confession is not only telling the truth about God, but it's telling the truth about me. I am the one to blame. If there is sin, it is mine. If there is pride, it is mine. If there is dissension and slander, it came from my mouth. If my marriage is failing and my kids are exasperated, it's on me. This is all my fault. Nehemiah not only confesses his own personal sin, he confesses the sins of the people. Thirdly, confession says this is all our fault. Verse 7. We have acted very corruptly against you, and we have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. He says, we, we, we are to blame. We, your people. You know, it's become popular today. Particularly, I think, among the younger generation. uh, To stand outside of the church. And to say, and to point a finger and say, this, this is a problem. You guys are a problem. And the church is terrible and wicked and hypocritical. And I'm a Christian, but I don't have anything to do with the church. And here's the truth. Until you are willing to go down to the river among confessing sinners, there is no hope for you. Until you're willing to identify with the people and confess, this is all our fault. We, the people, have broken his commandments. We have acted corruptly. If the walls of the city are flattened and the gates of the city are burned, it is not God's fault. It is ours. Confession says, it's not God's fault. This is all my fault and this is all our fault. Brothers and sisters, let us confess our sins day in and day out. 
and throw ourselves on the mercy of a steadfast, loving, covenant-keeping God. Which brings us to the second half, the third, the second part of Nehemiah's prayer, and the third essential to revival is repentance. So weeping, confession, repentance. Listen to verse eight. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, "If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments." And do them. Let's just stop there. Verse 9 shows us what repentance entails. It's two things. Returning and obeying. Did you hear it there in verse 9? Returning and obey. If you return to me and keep my commands and do them. In the Old Testament, the word repentance is the word return. It's the same word. Because repentance is really about a relationship. Our relationship with a holy God. When we repent, we're not merely vowing that we're going to you know, do away with a certain sin. I'm never going to sin again. I'm never going to swear again. I'm never going to drink again or gamble. That's not what we're talking about. Repentance is not just about trying to do something more or not do something less. Repentance is about returning to the Lord. Repentance is about prodigal sons wandering back the road to meet their father. It's about our responsibility when we become aware of our sin and our shame to turn back to him. Repentance is also about obeying. Keep my commands and do them, Nehemiah says. It's not enough to want to return to God and be His child and Him be our Father and for us to have this loving relationship with Him, but be unwilling to obey Him. That was the problem with Israel. They loved having a relationship with the Lord. You know? Not all that interested in obeying Him. The prophet Isaiah said about them, This people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips. While their heart, their hearts are far from me. You see, true repentance is both. It's returning and obeying. Returning to God and longing to obey His word. Number three, brothers and sisters, we must repent. And here's the thing about all of us weeping, confessing, and repenting. None of these things does anything to change our circumstances. Not an ocean of tears will wash away a single sin. Not even the most earnest confession can blot out a single stain of guilt. Not the most sorry sheep can ever find its way back to the shepherd. And all of our weeping over sin and all of our confessing of our sin and all of our repenting from our sin and turning back to God. We can only hope in one thing. And it's this. That this God of heaven is a covenant-keeping, steadfast, loving, promise-making and keeping kind of God. It's He alone. 
that's able to come along and find us wherever we have wandered and fallen into a ditch and scoop us up and carry us on his shoulders back into his fold. Nehemiah's only hope as he finishes this prayer is that God will keep his promise. That is his only hope. Let me read to you the end of his prayer. Nehemiah is simply reminding God, you promised this. Verse 9. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place where I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. There's a story in the book of Acts where Paul and Silas are singing in prison. And it's midnight, pitch black. And they're just rejoicing. And all of a sudden, their praises, almost as if their praises have just thrown the locks off the door, an earthquake comes, shakes the prison, and all of the doors fling open. And out of the pitch black darkness, you hear a piercing cry. They're gone! I'm ruined! I'm finished! And it's the jailer. Because he's assumed when the prison doors are flung open, what are the prisoners going to do? Run away! Escape! Flee! So he raises his sword to his own throat and just as he's a knife's edge away from an eternity of God's wrath, Paul cries out in the darkness, Don't do it! Lower your sword. We are all here. Searching for a light, the jailer scrambles through the dank hall back to Paul's cell and he peers in there and he falls on his face, tears streaming down his cheeks and he cries out, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. You and your household. This is the missing piece, isn't it? Believe. Number four, believe. Believe that God is the kind of God who would send his son down to earth, the good shepherd, to chase his sheep no matter where they have been cast, even to the furthest stretches of the galaxy, to the farthest corners of heaven and earth. Believe that he is a redeeming God. Believe that he is a God who pays all the debt that we owe him. Believe that he is a God who is great in power and has a mighty hand. Like the jailer in the depths of the prison, Nehemiah realizes he is the one in chains. Out of the darkness, Nehemiah cries out to the Lord, what must we do to be saved? Believe. Believe in the Lord Jesus, the Son of God, sent from heaven to gather his sheep to gather all of the repentant sinners from the four corners of the earth and to bring them back to God. Weep at his feet as you see him nailed to the cross for your sins. Confess the truth that Jesus, the blameless, perfect lamb, died and took your blame. 
Repent. Return to Jesus. And keep his word. And believe. Verse 11. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant. And to the prayer of your servants. Who delight to fear your name. And give success to your servant today. And grant him mercy in the sight of this man. sad state of affairs for the people of God this morning in Nehemiah chapter 1. But there yet may still be hope for revival. Nehemiah's parting remark this morning. Now, I was the cupbearer of the king. In case you don't, can't read between the lines, he's saying, to be continued. Who knows what God might do with a weeping, confessing, repenting believing people. Let's pray. God, how simple it is to be saved. And yet, these are the things that all men without the power of your Spirit are unwilling to do. To weep over their guilt and shame to tell the truth about themselves and about you. To repent and believe that everything has already been done for the salvation, the eternal salvation of our souls. Lord Jesus, we pray, shape our hearts. Bring revival among your people here at College Street Baptist Church so that the glory of your name might shine through Newberry to the ends of the earth. It is in your name that we pray. Amen.